I once had a, a friend. He was a competent person. I, I had no reason to doubt him. He was, he was actually a deacon at the church where I was pastoring. And he came up to me one Wednesday night at Wednesday night supper, and we were just sitting there, and all the dishes being cleared, and most people were gone. It was just one other guy and me sitting there. And this, this fellow that I'm talking about sat down on the other side of the table, and you could tell he was very serious, and he wanted to share something with us. And so he started talking, and I started listening. He started telling me and my friend about what had happened uh, a few weeks earlier to him. He said that he was lying in his bed one night, late at night, and a spacecraft, UFO spacecraft, hovered over his house, transported him out of his bed into this spacecraft where there were only women serving as scientists or whatever. They did some kinds of experiments on him and then sent him back to his bedroom. I had to bite the inside of my jaws to keep from laughing at this guy. My first thoughts were, what kind of drugs are you on? No matter how competent this man was, there's no way I could believe such an outlandish tale. Have you, have you ever had anything like that happen to you where somebody's telling you something? I mean, they're all serious about this thing, and you're going, no way. That, that does not happen. So imagine your fiancé coming up to you just out of the blue and telling you she's pregnant. And you happen to know there's absolutely no way that I am the father to make things worse, she proceeds to tell you that an angel visited her and told her that she was going to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and give birth, get this, and give birth to the Son of God. That makes spaceships with women scientists seem more plausible, doesn't it? For the course of the next few Sundays, we're going to gather together and we're going to talk about some narratives around the birth of Christ. And what we'll do pretty much for each of those, we'll talk about the drama and the doctrine of that narrative. So the drama is what happens and the doctrine is, okay, why does it matter? Okay, So that, that's sort of what we're going to do for the next few weeks. And today we're going to be talking about the virgin birth of Christ, does the virgin birth matter? There are two texts in the New Testament that talk about the virgin birth of Christ. Luke chapter 1 describes Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel and how that she finds out what is going to happen. And then Matthew chapter 1 is when an angel visits in a dream, visits Joseph, and tells him what is happening to his betrothed wife. So uh, the way that we're going to look at this today is we're just going to walk through these two texts, just looking at the drama, just kind of looking and see what's happening, describe what's happening, and then uh, when that's done, I'm going to give what I'm calling 
three and a half reasons why the virgin birth of Christ really matters. You say, how can you give half a reason? Well, the fourth reason is very, very brief, so it doesn't even earn a whole number on its own. So those of you who are taking notes, you can put down three and a half reasons why the virgin birth of Christ matters. So let's look first in Luke. Again, this is Uh, the account of Mary finding out Luke chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 26 through 38, just going verse by verse. Those uh, verses will show up on the screen for you as well, Uh, but I like to hear those Bibles turning. I even like to see the buttons being pushed to turn on your devices as well. So chapter 1 of Luke, verse 26, says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So this angel is sent from God. Listen, here's what's important about this. He's sent to a real place in a real time. A real place in real time. Folks, Christianity is a historical religion. Things actually happen Uh, The cross actually occurs. The birth of Jesus actually occurs. It's not just a a, a conglomeration of philosophical ideas, right? Christianity is a historical religion. It says, in the sixth month. The sixth month of what? Well, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And it says that Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, I want you to notice this. The angel is not sent because Mary is praying. Mary's not saying, oh God, please come do this in my life. Lord, uh, I'm walking after you. I'm longing after you. Uh, Lord, I I desire, in fact, I deserve some kind of blessings from you. That's not what's happening at all. The Bible just says God dispatched Gabriel to go visit Mary. Mary. Gabriel, by the way, is the same angel that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 8. There are only two angels in the Bible that are named. Gabriel here is like a messenger angel. And then there's Michael, who is the archangel. He shows up in Daniel and in several other places, including uh, Revelation. So we go on to verse 27. He sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So what's important about that verse? Well, where it says here, to a virgin. Listen, the Greek word there for virgin is very specific. There's all kinds of words that you could have written down that would have meant young woman, young lady, teenager, so forth. But this word is very specific. The word is parthenos. And it means a woman who has not been intimate with a man. So he comes to this virgin, and then the Bible says she is betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Y'all, to be betrothed in those days is not like engagement in our days. Engagement seemed to come and go, and you know what? You can just uh, take the ring off and give it back, and, and it's really no big deal. But in those days, it was a big deal. To be, engaged, to, to be betrothed meant there would have been a, a ceremony. Families would have gathered. It was almost like a wedding. Except the marriage was not consummated yet, okay? So, so but yet they are betrothed together. Um, to be separated would have, would have taken actual an act of divorce. It's that serious. So he, she's betrothed. She is uh, you know, finally linked to this man. And notice, it says his name is Joseph, but it doesn't say a whole lot about Joseph, does it? doesn't tell us his background. doesn't say anything. What it just says is he's of the house of David. 
Why is that important? Well, we know that the Messiah would come from David's lineage. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14 tell us this. He's speaking of the Messiah would come from David's lineage. And if you remember this account, Nathan the prophet is there with David. And he's speaking to David and he tells him this. He says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And he's talking about Solomon there. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, Solomon's temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he's still talking about Solomon. And then he says this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Right? So here, the promises to David that he will have this son, Solomon, and through Solomon that his kingdom will be established. But the New Testament doesn't leave it there. Hebrews chapter 1, when, when the, the author of the Hebrews is talking about Jesus, and Jesus is coming, he's greater than the angel, he's greater than Moses. But he says this, it, it extends this prophecy to Jesus as the ultimate son of David, where he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 1 quotes that and applies it to Jesus. Do you understand what he's saying? The initial son would be Solomon, but it, there's a greater son to come, and that is Jesus. And that's why the angel here is made very plain. He's going to, uh, to Joseph, who is of the house of David. All right, verses 28 through 29. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. The word there it doesn't mean so much fearful, afraid. The word means perplexed. She didn't quite get it. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Can you imagine an angel coming to you and saying, Greetings, O favored one. Listen, here's why she was perplexed. Mary knew her own heart. She knew her own life. She knew that... that she, of all people, should not be favored of God. She, she, it doesn't say it here, but you can just read into this. Her going, who, me? Really? No way. It would be like an angel coming to you, or coming to me, and greeting you. Greetings. Oh, favored one. Angel comes to me and says that I'm kind of like, hold on, you know, who are you talking to? But that's what Mary was doing. Verse 30 says this, and the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Notice what it's not saying. She does not earn favor from God. She's not earning it. It says, you have found favor with God. Does anybody know what the word favor there is? The word favor is the word, the Greek word charis, which is oftentimes, most oftentimes, translated in the New Testament as grace. Greetings, Mary. You have found, listen, you have found grace in the sight of God. Does that make more sense to you? Found grace? Grace, y'all, is not earned or deserved. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. 
God's not repaying Mary because she was so upstanding. So it goes on in verses 31 through 33. And behold, you will, that's an indicative that he's just saying this is what's going to happen. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, son, and you shall, that's an imperative, that's a command, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So here this angel comes to Mary and says, Mary, guess what? You're going to be pregnant. You're going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and here's who's, you're going to give birth to the son, and here's who he is. So verses 31 to 33 prophesy about this son, Jesus. And what does it say in particular? His name will be Jesus. Now, please understand this. When the angel spoke these words to Mary, he did not say, his name will be Jesus. He, he wasn't speaking English to Mary. Just like Jesus wasn't going to have blonde hair and blue eyes. The angel was speaking either Hebrew or Aramaic. But what he says is his, his name will be Yeshua. The Anglicanized transliteration of Yeshua is Joshua. The Hebrew word Joshua means the one who saves or the one who delivers. So he says his name will be Yeshua. His name translated then into Greek and transliterated into English is Jesus, Iesus. But then he says, he will be the son of the Most High. That name for God is first seen uh, in, in Genesis chapter 14. Do you all remember when Zach was preaching through Genesis? And in, in Genesis chapter 14, he talked about this, this great priest. They called him the king of Salem. His name was Melchizedek. And if you remember anything about Mel Melchizedek, the Bible calls him the priest of the God Most High, El Elyon. This is the first time we see that. And here, Mary is told, your son is going to be this great high priest. He will be of the throne of David, the angel promises her. He will reign over Jacob and Israel forever. And I don't have time today to get into this. I'm not, that's not my intention. But y'all, listen, there is a sense in which the church, the, the New Testament church, is the fulfillment of Israel. Now notice, I'm not saying the replacement. There's a difference in replacement theology, and that's not what I'm preaching here. But there is a sense in which the New Testament church is the fulfillment of all the promises that are to Israel. So when you say that he will reign over Jacob and Israel forever, it would include Jacob and Israel, but it also includes the church. And then he says, of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Mary's got to be going, well, you know, wow, why me? Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this thing be since I'm a virgin? I mean, that's a very logical question, right? I don't know. Listen, I, I don't know. I'm not sure if Mary initially thought about the necessity of remaining a virgin. I don't, I don't know that that's why she was going, um, how will this thing be? It, it could very well be. Perhaps she was thinking, listen, perhaps she was thinking, what man on earth am I able to be with that is going to produce such a child as this? What man on earth could there possibly be to produce the promised Messiah, the Son of God? 
But it may very well be, and she was understanding, you know what, this is going to happen to me as a virgin, and how is that going to happen? The angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, verse 35, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Here's the answer, Mary. It won't be Jesus. It will be the power of the Holy Spirit that overpowers you. God's going to overshadow, but He's not going to have intimate relations with you. There are plenty, plenty of mythological stories out there about the gods coming to earth and having relations with, with women on this earth and producing some kind of hodgepodge of some monstrosity mythological being. That is not what is happening here. In the last three verses of that, uh, 36 through 38, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. That's a great story in itself. We might even talk about that next week. Has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And in my mind, I just wonder if she's ever with Joseph and she's, you know, in, in this course of time, the next week or the next two weeks, and she's just maybe at home just, you know, chopping some carrots or folding some clothes. And she goes, um, Joseph, a, a funny thing happened to me. No, no, you know, I don't think he's ready for that now. I, I don't know. I would just love to just have been a fly on the wall watching these conversations happen back then. But anyway, that's how Mary finds out. What about Joseph? Well, for Joseph's understanding or his acknowledgement of the virgin birth, we look at Matthew chapter 1. And beginning in verse 18, it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, there's the word betrothal again, before they came together, that means the marriage has not been consummated, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So here's the deal. The angel comes to Mary beforehand, says this is going to happen to you. The angel comes to Joseph after the fact and says this has happened to Mary already. You, under, you follow that? So here we see Matthew is confirming this betrothal. They are legally engaged. And before the marriage is consummated, Mary is found to be with child. So verse 19, it says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So I'm not sure what's going on here. Mary is even, maybe she has told Joseph ahead of time. He's like, Joseph, you got to understand, here's what's happened. You know, I've been, the Holy Spirit overshadowed me, and now there are all signs that I am pregnant. And I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit, I promise you, Joseph. And Joseph's got to be, man, he's a, he's a good guy. But, you know, you think somebody comes to you in a spaceship or something, you're going, hold on, man, they're on drugs or whatever. And he could very well have been going, hold on now, I just don't, you know, this is too much for me to believe. But now it's getting to the point where she's probably showing, there's probably a baby bump there. And he says that he's a just man, he's unwilling to put her to shame. You see, that would have been adultery even during the betrothal period is serious. It was punishable by death. So Joseph, and I don't know how he would do this. I don't know what it means to put her away quietly. 
But that's what he says. He, he's a good guy. He's a just guy. He, even though he may feel like he's been sinned against, he still has a heart for Mary. He doesn't want to put her out there to be, you know, to be stoned or whatever. He's willing to put her away quietly, whatever that means. And verse 20 says this, but. I love every time we see but in the Bible. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, here the angel doesn't call him the son of Jacob, who was his earthly father. He calls him the son of David. He's putting the pieces together for Joseph. Mary has not played the harlot. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name will be Yeshua, Jesus. Specifically here, he says he will save his people from his sins. That's why Jesus came, is to save his people from their sins. Verses 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill. Now follow me here. You can get lost here. You can go to sleep here, I'm telling you. So those of you who are tendency to go to sleep, wake up. Verse 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He's going to quote Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So follow me what's happening here. Matthew takes a verse from Isaiah, what's going on in Isaiah, and he brings it from Isaiah's time, he crosses all the way into a thousand years later and brings it into contemporary time, and he takes that verse and he applies its ultimate fulfillment to Christ. So what is going on here? Don't get bogged down in all this, but, but, but what's kind of happening is Assyria, A-S-S-Y, whatever, how you spell that, Assyria is like the big kid on the block, a big dominant nation. And then under Assyria, you have Syria, you have Israel, you have Judah. Syria and Israel are getting together and they're scheming and they want to go take on Assyria. They come over to Ahaz, who's the, who is the king of Judah, and says, Ahaz, help us out. We, you know, please help us out. And he's like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Well, what happens then, Syria... And Israel join forces and they turn on Judah. They turn on Ahaz. And Ahaz is freaking out. I mean, he's calling everybody. You know, he's pulling out all the stops. Oh, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And at that point, the prophet Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, Ahaz, you ain't got nothing to sweat about, dude. Nothing to worry about. Before these kings of, the, of these two countries, uh, before they get much older, you're not even going to be able to talk about them because they're going to be wasted away. And Ahaz is kind of like scoffing at God. He's kind of like, yeah, I believe it. And Isaiah says, okay, ask a sign. You don't believe it? Ask for a sign. I don't care what sign you want to ask for. Ask it, and I'll give you that sign. Ahaz, he's playing like super, you know, I'm super good. I don't need to ask a sign. I know what's going on, but... He doesn't ask the sign. And so Isaiah says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign. And here's the sign. And he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Again, he's talking to, to Ahaz way back then. 
He shall eat courage and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. I can see you're bogging down right here, so I don't want to bog it down. All, I want to, all you need to understand is, is here. This, ulti, this, this primary fulfillment of a prophecy in the, in the Old Testament is ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament by the birth of Christ to a virgin. All right, let's move on. Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Okay, there's the drama. That's all we know in the New Testament about the virgin birth of Christ. That's it. Paul doesn't really write about it. Nobody else does. This, this is it. An angel told Mary and Joseph of the virgin conception and birth and in some way linked to Isaiah's prophecy to Ahaz 700 years earlier. So I'll ask you this question. Why does it matter? Does it? I mean, obviously, we're going to all go, well, yes, for sure, it matters. It's in the Bible. It's got to matter. I want to ask you, why does it matter? Does it matter that Jesus was actually born of a virgin? What is the significance of this to us today? And that's not all that I could say on this subject, obviously, and I don't want to belabor it, but there are, I'm, I said, three and a half significances. I'm going to give you three and a half significance. Why the virgin birth is important. Number one is this. The virgin birth made possible the unity of full deity and full humanity in one person, listen, in a way that makes sense and is understandable to us. Okay? How many of you are lost by what I just said? You raise your hand and say, I ain't got a clue what you're saying. Thank you. What, he's, what, what we're saying, the virgin birth makes it possible. Here's what we say. We teach this, we, the Bible teaches us about God. How many gods are there? I want to ask you. How many gods are there? One. He's revealed himself in how many persons? Three. What are the three persons of the Godhead? God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. Have, we have one God, three persons. Now I'm going to ask you a hard question. How many natures does the second person, Christ, have? Two. So when you ever think about God, we want to think about the numbers one, two, and three. There's one God. He's revealed himself in three persons, but in one of those persons consists of two natures. All right? There's the deity nature, in other words, the God part of Jesus, and then there's the human part of Jesus. They're not mixed, it's not 50-50, it's 100-100. And so what we're saying here is, by this account, this narrative of the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, it makes it possible for the unity of His humanity and His deity to occur in a way that makes sense or we can begin to understand it. Here, so here's what I mean by that. We can surmise that God could have done it this way. God could have just had a human guy out there somewhere, just sort of random, all of a sudden show up on the pages of history, right? 
We don't know where he came from, but all of a sudden he shows up and somehow or another um, he, he gets his, his, his godly nature um, is given to him. That's a, that would be a problem for us, though, because a lack of a birth narrative would make it hard for us to think of this one as totally human. You understand what I'm saying? If he just shows up out of the blue, and now all of a sudden there's this human there doing something, how do we know? What understanding will we have that he is totally human? On the other hand, God could have utilized two human parents with his divine nature united with his human nature at some point along the line. You follow me? So in other words, Jesus could have been conceived and born just like all of us, but then it would have been hard for us to see him as fully God because his origin would have been just like ours. So I'm just saying the very first point, the virgin birth made possible the unity of the full deity of Christ and his full humanity in a way that we could understand it. Now, um, and I'm sorry I didn't put my clock up here and somebody gave me a clock. People came to me with all kinds of clocks. Somebody tell me what time you got. Two minutes. Two, two minutes. All right, now remember, we had a business meeting and all that stuff first, right? So, got, got two minutes to finish my introduction. So, so stay with me here, okay? And I'm not, I won't try to get all this done today. I'm, I'm going to, I want to just camp out right here just for a minute. In fact, this is a good place to kind of draw this maybe to a close, and we'll finish the next part next week. How about that? Y'all okay with that? All right. You may wonder why Christ being 100% God and 100% man matters. Why does that even matter? We'd have doubts, maybe. Yes. Absolutely. So, so what James has just answered is, is the fully human part, right? So if he weren't fully human, he would not be able to fully identify, like it says in Hebrews, we don't have a great high priest who's unable to, to feel and understand what we've been through. He, like us, has been tempted in every way. Think about this. Think about this, y'all. Jesus has been tempted in every way that you or I or anyone on this earth has ever been tempted. Right? That's an amazing thought, yet without sin. So if Jesus were not fully human, here's another way of understanding that. He would not be able to represent humanity as the second Adam. Right? So as Adam's sin is passed on to us, we will find out later that the righteousness of Christ is passed on to us as the second Adam. Jesus, the second Adam, was able to fully do, fully obey God where Adam wasn't. He didn't. 
But here's the real point. Why does he have to be human? To be a substitutionary sacrifice, he had to fully identify with us. That's why the blood of goats and rams is not sufficient. A blood, the, the blood of goats and rams and all those things can cover over for a while, but they are not human. They're not able to stand in our place. So you wonder why it has to be fully human? That's why it has to be fully human. But let's, let's close this message with this. I'll ask you this. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be totally God? Now, we're not, we're not arguing the point that he was totally God. The Bible is very, very plain on that. Okay, We don't even want to go there. If you, if you have questions about that, you just believe, hey, I can't believe he's fully God. I'll take you in the scripture later on and show you that. So we're just, we're just going to take that for granted. 100% man, 100% God. He's 100% man. Why is that important? To be a substitutionary sacrifice for us. But why was it important for him to be totally God? Okay, I don't know if you heard what he said. Otherwise, he wouldn't be perfect now. And that, but I want to push back a little bit. I would suggest that everything Jesus every, ever did, his denying temptation, his re, I don't know the right word I'm looking for, his, his pushing away from sin, his denying sin, he's doing what's right, I believe he did that in his human nature. He did that perfectly as the perfect human so that that perfectness, that righteousness could be, could be given to us. Okay? But, but I think, James, you're, you're, I think we're on the right track now. I think so. Here's just what I come up with and sort of two reasons. One is only an infinite God could bear the penalty of all those who trust Him. It, 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 you know, you think about a, a human putting all of the, the sin of all of humanity on a human, it just, it just doesn't ring right. It just doesn't seem like a, a finite creature could bear the infinite. That's just what I'm getting at. But the real reason is this, and it's kind of simple. Salvation is from God and God alone. No man is capable of saving us. The Bible is Old Testament's all about that. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from God. So, yes, we had to have a human as a substitutionary sacrifice, but he had to be God because only God can save. Well, this is a good place to stop. I'd invite you to come back next week, and we'll try to finish up on uh, why the virgin birth is important. But as we bring this message to a close, um, It can, be, um, it can be easy to look at the world around us and look at people that don't know Christ and belittle them and, and call them out because of their beliefs. Y'all, um, what we believe is supernatural. What we believe is, is God is the author of the virgin birth. He's the author of salvation. He's the author of everything. And yes, yes, things happen for a reason. And, and only 
man and a woman can, can make a little baby, but y'all, we can't be so familiar with that that we actually forget that God is above His natural creation. God has put certain things in order. The, wor- the world operates in a certain way, but listen, and we call that natural creation. Nat, you know, and we, we look at the way things work and we see gravity and all those kind of things working and, and, you know, and the world looks at that and says, yes, there's gravity and yeah, you, know, you pick this up and drop it, it's going to fall because that's a law of nature. And listen, those things are laws of nature, but don't, don't forget this. Those laws of nature continue for one reason only, and that's because God is on the throne and He keeps them continuing. The natural law is God's law and God is sovereign over all. Let's pray. Lord, um, today we just, we, uh, we've just even barely begun to start talking about um, this narrative, this story. Lord, thank you for coming into this world, your world. Thank you for the way that you brought Jesus into this world. And God, forgive us where we want to answer the world the way the world wants to answer. Lord, may we always remember that our God is a supernatural God. Our God is sovereign and good. Lord, if you had not come to Mary... She could have never made her way to you. The same holds true for all of us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Lord, be exalted now as we sing this last song. May we sing it from our hearts and from our minds, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.